Okay, Isaiah 13. Uh, last time um, we were in Isaiah 13 and um, we got through the first five verses and this time we are going to complete the entire rest of the chapter, God willing. Um, so verses 6 through to 22. Uh, so let's just pray and we'll dig in. Father, we pray that as we come to your word tonight, Lord, that you would bless our time, Lord. As we see the mighty hand of judgment go out against Babylon, Lord, may we, may we be ever grateful that we are yours, that you are for us and not against us, that the wrath that is rightly ours was put upon your son, and that we that we stand in a place of forgiveness. But Lord, may we never forget you are a God of wrath and that justice must be served. And we praise you for that. Amen. Amen. Okay. So last time we were uh, dealing with the beginning of this entire section on Babylon. And we looked at the first five verses, the burden of Babylon and um, we got to see uh, the, the start of that chapter and we talked a little bit about Babylon um, about Babylon in history and uh, went from Genesis to Revelation and a few places in between and more specifically um, what we see here is we see uh, Gentiles Gentile armies gathering and uh, we see uh, we saw a link there between the sheep and goat judgment of uh, Matthew 25, which is where we ended last time. So now as we come back to verse 6, the remainder of this chapter is simply dealing with the fall of Babylon. It's dealing with the fall of Babylon. And we're picking up then in verse 6, um, where we're told, Wail, for the day of Yahweh is near. And so immediately as we come to this fall of Babylon, we need to understand that again, for the umpteenth time, you can tell I'm counting, the umpteenth time in Isaiah, we've come to the phrase, the day of the Lord. Again, we're talking of this end time judgment and end time restoration that will occur um, in the last day. So that is our time scale. So just a couple of things as we hit, as we, we hit the ground running with this, I just want us to be aware of. So firstly, this is something that is being spoken of that will happen in the last time. Now, some people think that it's partly sort of long distance future, end time, and partly sort of nearer distant future. Um, and I don't think so, and I'll explain why that is at the, at the time. But certainly as we come into it, it's very clear it's end time. The reason that we need to note this is because, of course, there are parallels. Now, we've seen this in Isaiah already parallels between end time fulfillment and nearer time, not fulfillment, not partial fulfillment, but allusion to, a nudge towards, you know I said that this would happen, here's a little reminder. I think, I, I, I think of them almost as, um, as, as, as literally that, reminders. 
Here's a prophecy, here's a reminder of that prophecy. Let me give you an example. In Isaiah chapter 9, we saw that this land of, on this land of great darkness, that light would come upon it. That this northern region of Israel, where all the armies had traipsed down towards Jerusalem um, in history, that whether they were very successful and got right to Jerusalem, or whether they were very unsuccessful and didn't get very far at all, the further north you are, it's going to affect you anyway. Because they're coming through you to come through. And so this was a land of great darkness. Isaiah prophesies in chapter 9 that ultimately it will be a land of great light. And it clearly is speaking contextually of end times. And yet, when Jesus came, that's the very region he came to. To Capernaum, to the Sea of Galilee, to that region of northern Israel, that's where he came. And in that sense, a light in Christ, Christ is light, came to that land of darkness. Was that a fulfillment of Isaiah 9? No, it wasn't a fulfillment of Isaiah 9. What Isaiah 9 is going to entail is very clear in the context. It's not the first coming of Christ, it's the second coming of Christ. But nonetheless, because the coming of Messiah is associated with light to that region, when Jesus comes the first time, he is, in a sense, bringing light to that region. And it's kind of a, it's not a replacement of the prophecy that was given. It's not even a partial fulfillment, as I think some people erroneously say. What it is, is it is a reminder. It is an illusion. It is a nudge towards that prophecy. And so here, when we see the destruction of Babylon, we know that Babylon is destroyed to some degree. It is defeated, more accurately, at, um, at, at the time of the end of the, the period of exile. But that is clearly not what's being spoken of here. So that although there are similarities, it's clearly not the same thing, and we'll see that as we go through. The second main thing to note as we go in as well while I'm, I'm here is that this passage of the destruction and the fall of Babylon is the shortest one of the three in the Bible. And so a lot of what is maybe unclear here becomes clear when we look at the two parallel passages. The longest one is Jeremiah 50 and 51. Two entire chapters and long ones of that. We might reference them briefly. One plan I, I had was to, to split this uh, remainder of this chapter into two parts and to spend a lot of time comparing Jeremiah uh, with Isaiah. But I think if we do that, you'll all be sick of the fall of Babylon after a couple of weeks. So um, it's probably best just to reference it, and then you can go away and look at that, those two chapters if you wish. The other passage that gives us details, which is going to become crucial, as we'll see later, is Revelation 18. Revelation 18 also deals with the fall of Babylon. And I think that makes it very, very clear that though Babylon may have been defeated at the end of the exile, by the Medo-Persians. At the same time, the prophecy that Isaiah gives here is clearly dealing with end times because Revelation talks about exactly the same thing at a time that is, as a prophecy that's future, at a time long, long after the exile. So with all that in mind, let's dig in a little bit and, uh, and see where we go. So the day of the Lord is near. So the, the day of the Lord is being the end time judgment and it's near. It's interesting that this section begins with the reference to the day of the Lord being near and it ends in verse 22 with its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. It's kind of an inclusio, if you like, of the nearness of the day of the Lord. Now, I don't know by what definition God has the word near, 
but that's something that Isaiah prophesied. There have you know, 700 or so years from there to the time of Christ, or another couple of thousand beyond that. So we're now up to sort of the best part of 3,000 years from the prophecy being given, and it hasn't happened. Now, I'm the sort of person that, you know, when something's due to come in the mail and it's a day late, I'm on the phone saying, Where, where's my stuff, you know? So the idea of, of, of something being near when it's nearly 3,000 years away, and possibly a, a chunk more, um, is, is not something that's encouraging to me. But what it is saying to us is this, I think, more than anything, is that the days, uh, verse 22, will not be prolonged. In other words, when it's time, it will happen. And that's a little reminder to us that God is always on time. That we want things to happen now, we want things to happen yesterday, we want the answers of prayer to happen when we want them to happen. And our basis for wanting them to happen is typically because it will ease our pain. It will make our lives better. We want to have things done immediately. But God will do things at the right time. And the judgment of Babylon will come at the right time. So, the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. It's impossible, I think, to... I've tried, I've tried a couple of things, but, um, and I've read a couple, but I don't think anyone's done it very well yet. But in the Hebrew, the, um, the words for destruction and Almighty are very similar sounding. So it's kind of like... Um, uh, saying the destruction from the destroyer. It's kind of got a, 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 a very similar feel to it there. There's a, there's a technical term for it that I don't recall right now. But um, uh, other, some people have said, yeah, destruction from the destroyer. What, what, uh, one commentator has shambles from Shaddai, which I think is nice. It's nice effort. Shambles isn't quite destruction. I mean, you know, my life's a shambles, but it's not completely destroyed. <laughs> but uh, shambles from Shaddai. Uh, Shaddai, El Shaddai is the name here. It's actually a very common name for God in the Bible. We think it means essentially God Almighty, destruction from the Almighty, from Shaddai. Um, it's the only time Isaiah uses the phrase. He never, he never uses that name for God anywhere else other than here. And we think that the only reason he uses it here is simply to, to make that sort of play with words, but, which, which is interesting. But um, Isaiah has very specific names for God that he likes to use at specific times. But anyway, Almighty God is the one uh, who is, brings destruction. It will come from him. Verse 7. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, every human heart will melt, they will be dismayed. Pans and, pangs and agony will seize them, they will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another, their faces will be aflame. There will be all these results uh, of the destruction. As we come to the specifics in a minute, but here's the general thing. They're going to be dismayed. They're going to have these pangs and agony. Hands going feeble. Um, remember when we talk about the strong hand of the Lord, we're talking about his military might. So their hands being feeble means that they're essentially going to fold. There's going to be no real resistance. Um, their human heart will melt. That's, um, that is a sense of dismay. Uh, very much like a, um, 
or disheartenment, I think, and then dismay. Pangs and agony, uh, anguish like a woman in labor, there's going to be a painful thing for them. They will look aghast at one another. There will be a shock, amazement. They didn't see this coming. This is a surprise attack. Babylon, as I said to you last time, thinks that it is approaching its uh, greatest victory, um, the taking down of Jerusalem. The armies are gathered in, the, in, in, in Armageddon. And uh, this destruction of Babylon is a real surprise to them. And finally, their faces will be aflame. That is basically a little bit what it sounds like, red faces. There'll just be this sheer embarrassment. They didn't see it coming, but maybe they should have seen it coming. There is a shame that will come, an embarrassment because of this attack. So behold, verse 9, again a reference to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord comes, the day of Yahweh comes. Cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy sinners, to de- sorry, to destroy its sinners from it. So the day of the Lord is coming, and the day of the Lord as a whole, this time of judgment, and by implication, the restoration that happens afterwards, something that we know in Revelation as being called tribulation. That this period of time has several different purposes. And really, this is the main one. It is, as so many judgments come to deal with sin during the Bible history, and, and then they go, kind of go away, and then they come back, or they, or they change, that this is the final judgment, the final tribulation to bring about the end of lawlessness, to bring the end to the, the sinners and the, the land. And so when the, when the day of the Lord comes... There will, it'll be things like this, the fall of Babylon, the end of the uh, injustice and the, the land will be destroyed and the people within it will be destroyed. And so much of God putting things right, which will happen in the kingdom, actually begins in the period of judgment. When it comes to the kingdom, God's not going to have to say, right, let's deal with Babylon, because Babylon got dealt with in the judgment, that kind of thing. Um, So verse 10, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. That is just simply what it sounds like, that there are going to be stars and sun and moon and yet there will be no light from them. Now, you could read as, as the newspaper exegetes like, try to do. By that, I mean those who like to publish vast quantities of information on end times, way, way, way beyond what the Bible suggests. And they'll tell you about you know, dark clouds of ash and nuclear fallout and you know, nuclear winters and stuff. And of course, I guess these things are possible, but we simply don't know. What we do know is that the blackout that has already occurred in human history seems to be supernatural rather than natural. The one I'm thinking of, I'm not sure it's not the only one, but the one I'm thinking of is, of course, at the time of the death of Christ, when the world goes dark for three hours, right in the middle of the day. Secular historians wrote about that, who were in the region. And... That seems to me to have been a supernatural thing. It's not something there was a a natural explanation for. So I don't see why in the tribulation it need not be supernatural again, but I don't see that it has to be either. But there are certainly going to be blackouts where the world will go dark. And 
There are five such blackouts listed in the Bible for the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is signified as a time of darkness. And so, though the blackouts will be literal, just like they were at the time of Christ, or it was rather at the time of Christ, just as the blackout will be literal, it will also be symbolic. And just as an aside, by the way, when you see something that has clear symbolic meaning, don't let that be a reason to think that it's not literal too. A lot of things are literal and yet still have symbolic meaning. Jesus, uh, at the time of the blackout, there is that period of time where, the, where sin comes upon him. The light of the world becomes darkness. He who knew no sin became sin for our sake. There is, of course, symbolism within that blackout. And the day of the Lord is a time of darkness. It is a time of judgment. Light is gone. But like I said, there are five specific blackouts that are listed in the Bible. Now, I was kind of tempted to do a whole thing on blackouts, but I thought that that might bore me as much as you, so I'm kind of going to leave it to you. But suffice to say, I haven't looked into it as much as I would like. I know of these passages that refer to blackouts, whether any of them are the same, whether they are different is, is, is hard to tell. Um, some people uh, uh, apportion them according to when they happen in the, in the time of, of the day of the Lord. Um, let's go through them quickly. Joel chapter 2 and verse 31. You'll be familiar with that reference to a blackout because Peter quotes it at the book of Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. And of course, there is no indication that there was a blackout in Acts 2 and the day of Pentecost, which should be a hint to us amongst pretty much everything that he quoted didn't happen, bar one. Um, it should be a hint that what Peter was doing was not saying that Joel 2 was fulfilled in Acts 2, which it wasn't. But anyway, my point is simply that there is this reference in Joel 2 to a blackout, and it happens before the day of the Lord, it says. So it may well be that we experience a blackout before the time of judgment begins. That might mean immediately before, literally as the, the harbinger of doom, as it were, or it may be that it happens some time before. We simply don't know. Then in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 12, we have, um, I, I believe, chronologically, the first quarter of the tribulation. Then in chapter 9, verse 2, we have a blackout mentioned again, and that's the second quarter. And then in Revelation 16, verses 10 and 11, we have another blackout, and that refers to the second half of the tribulation. And then in Matthew 24 and verse 29, Jesus talks about there being a blackout after the day of the Lord. Though to me, that sometimes the day of the Lord simply refers to the judgment, uh, simply Sometimes it includes the time of restoration, so it, it's tricky to know exactly what's being referred to. But it does seem to me that there is like an inclusio of blackouts, that this time of darkness begins with darkness and ends with darkness and is characterized by darkness. Um, but certainly that is a clear and repeated aspect of the day of the Lord and the time of tribulation. Verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. In verse 11, there are two main things, really. Firstly, there is, again, this, what is the purpose of tribulation? What is the purpose of a day of the Lord? The purpose of it is, in part, at least, to bring judgment and to punish 
the world and the people within it. And um, that was what we already saw in verse 9. But secondly, I think we should note that there is also um, the typical Isaiah emphasis upon arrogance. Remember, for Isaiah, this is a crucial theme. That God is the one who is high and lifted up, and we don't want to lift ourselves up because then God will bring us down. But, but the one who is brought low, the suffering servant, he will be lifted up. There is this constant reference, and God is the one that should be exalted, and man should not be, but man, because of his pride, continues to want to exalt himself. This is just so foundational to um, passages in, say, First Peter and James that talk about, you know, if, if we humble ourselves, God will lift us up, and if we, if we um, exalt ourselves, he'll, he will bring us down. And uh, Isaiah is, you know, even if, if those passages are quoting other verses, Isaiah is really the foundation of that whole doctrine. And Isaiah again and again and again references pride. And remember for Isaiah, pride and idolatry are, 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 are totally linked. And, and the reason that they're linked is because when God says you should worship me and none other, a man says, you know what, I know better. I, I have a solution to this problem. And that clearly links the sins of pride and idolatry in Isaiah's mind. Okay, and verse 12, in verse 12, um, I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of, of fear. The gold of fear is referenced in uh, several other passages and is just particularly good gold. And here, or pure gold, we should probably say. And so here we have... The statement that man will become very, very rare, like a, not just like a precious stone, but like a precious, precious stone. And the idea is simply this, that people are everywhere. We live in a world where there's hustle and there's bustle and, you know, there's always people driving down the streets and walking down the streets and, and uh, you know, there are people everywhere in these kind of places and cities. Can you imagine going to downtown L.A.? and just seeing one person on one street corner, another person on another street corner, just literally a handful of people scattered around on a busy day. How bizarre would that be? You know, the maths of Revelation is interesting because we're told that, you know, early on in the first part of the tribulation, that there is, there is famine coming and there is war coming and there are these things coming and, and this number of people are wiped out. God does the, 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 the judgments, the, the bowl judgments and the trumpet judgments and there are this much of humanity wiped out and then there's this much of humanity wiped out and you almost need to remind yourself of compounding interest when it comes to deaths. If you wipe out half the planet then there's only half left that are going to be wiped out again. And tribulation, when you start to go through Revelation in detail, and as I say, Revelation doesn't tell us much new, but it gives us these kind of finer details. And not the, the, the overall plan so much, but things like numbers of those who die and percentages are given to us. And they add up. And the population of the earth is going to be utterly devastated. Devastated. You know? We're talking about, you know, the world's population going 6 billion and 7 billion and what have you. We're going to have well under a billion people on the earth at the end of the day of the Lord. The, the, the combination of famine and, and, 
you know, pestilence and warfare and supernatural judgments are going to decimate the earth. So man will become very rare. Now, note that the, the judgment of Babylon, as we know from our chronology, is, is, is quite early on, but it is, this, uh, it is a statement, therefore, in verse 12, that would have seemed ludicrous, or will rather, pardon me, future tense, seem ludicrous to those people at that time. It would just seem crazy. Well, men are going to become rarer than fine gold. They're going to be living in this world with a multitude of people, and the day of the Lord is... Um, uh, is going to come upon them and they're going to be stunned. And, uh, sorry, although this is, I said early on, didn't I? This, this passage comes early on in the second coming, but it comes late on in the tribulation. And so um, this, is, this is something that is going to be very much the case by the time of this judgment. Verse 13. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of Yahweh of hosts in the fierce day of his anger. There is a common occurrence, we've seen it already in Isaiah in the early chapters, of earthquakes being associated with judgment. We see it at the uh, time of Christ as well. And uh, again, I see modern uh, Christians often asking God to come and shake things up and I don't think they really know what they're asking for. It's always, it seems to always be associated with the judgment. And uh, note, you, you might say, well, hold on a second, wasn't it a good thing when there was earthquakes at the death of Christ in the sense of, you know, the graves were opened and what have you? Well, yeah, it was a, it was a good thing, but nevertheless, it was judgment. It was judgment on sin and it was judgment on death. So it was certainly associated with judgment again. And so here with the destruction of Babylon, we're going to see um, a blackout and we're going to see an earthquake. Um, although whether at this point, um, verses 9 through uh, 13 are dealing uh, more generally with the day of the Lord, which is possible, um, whether these things will coincide specifically with the fall of Babylon, um, we don't. And we can't say 100% with certainty. Verse 14. Um, and like a hunted gazelle, or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people, and each will flee to his own land. So what we have here at the results now of this, of this impending judgment, um, following this earthquake, is that we're going to have the flight of foreigners. Foreigners will flee to their own land. They will flee to their own land. And um, that's something I don't want to turn too often. And I don't need you to turn there at all, really. But something in uh, the parallel passage in Jeremiah, which gives us more details, talks about this some more. Um, the foreigners say, we would have healed Babylon. This is um, Jeremiah 51, verse 9. We would have healed Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her and let us go, each to his own country. For her judgment has reached up to heaven and has been lifted up even to the skies. And so the people are forsaking her and going back to their own lands. That seems to be a... a something that is, is supported by Jeremiah. Also, amongst that, we know from many passages that the Jews, too, will flee Babylon when judgment comes. And the reason for that is seen in Jeremiah 50, that's the earlier chapter, and uh, verses 7, uh, seven and 8, I think it is. Um, 
All who have uh, found them have devoured them. Their enemies have said, we are not guilty, for they have sinned against the Lord, the habitation of righteousness, Yahweh, the hope of their fathers. Flee from the midst of Babylon and go out of the land of the Chaldeans as be as male goats before the flock. For behold, I am stirring up and bringing against Babylon a gathering of great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her. All I want you to note from that is this. That's a prophecy and a warning to the Jews to get out. Judgment's coming. Time to flee. So many of these people are leaving Babylon, other than the natives, other than the nationals. They're leaving because God has warned them, the Jews specifically, to leave. And uh, the fleeing of the Jews is there at the beginning of Jeremiah 50. It's also in uh, 50 verse 28, chapter 51, verses 6 and 45. It's in Zechariah 2, verses 6 and 7, and in Revelation 18, verse 4. There's this constant theme that God is going to say, judgment's coming, Babylon, you get out ahead of time, Jews. They got an early warning of what was to come. And we will talk about that more in just a few weeks, because it's mentioned by Isaiah in chapter 48. So when we come to chapter 48, we'll deal with that. But uh, I'll just read it to you now, chapter 48, verse 20. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it. Send it to the ends of the earth, say, Yahweh has redeemed his servant Jacob. And so they will flee. Okay, so... The first thing then that is going to happen is that, uh, following the earthquake, is that um, the, each person will turn to his own. They will flee to their own land. They're like hunted animals. They're running away. God has set his target on Babylon, and they don't want to be there when it comes. Verse 15, whoever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. I don't really think that needs much commentary on it, does it? Other than to say that the Babylonians who throughout history brought the worst of punishment and judgment and destruction on other people, their greatest devastation they will witness as a nation in their history will be their own that as much as they brought these things onto others, these things will come upon them. And so, there is the destruction of Babylon. um, And then we'll now look at verse 17. uh, Verse 17. And we'll see um, the results of this destruction. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. So the judgment will come from the Medes. Now, just so we have our geography right, as I mentioned to you last time, Iraq, modern-day Iraq, is predominantly, as close as we can be with modern borders, uh, equivalent to the Babylon of the Bible. And so um, Babylon will... Babylon will uh, become a great nation again, as we saw last time, Zechariah chapter 5. And this great nation will become the center of the world, the center of world commerce and economy. And makes you kind of wonder what happens to America, doesn't it? But there we go. Um, Babylon will be the world center. And there, um, 
in modern-day Iraq. They will think they're indestructible. And then this attack will come. And we're, we saw in Jeremiah, as I read from you from chapter 50, verses 7, 8, 9, that there will be this, these nations coming, plural, from the north. We see here one specific nation mentioned. Imagine this is, presumably, they are the leaders of the confederacy. And these are the Medes. Now, Mede refers to the region that is, broadly speaking, modern-day Iran, modern-day Afghanistan, and possibly into the borders of the southern area of what used to be Russia, that's now various different states. And um, again, we need to just remember that when the destruction, no, rephrase it, when the defeat of Babylon came, remember the Babylonians took the Jews into exile, and then when they're there in Babylon, the Babylons are defeated, and they're defeated by the Medo-Persians. The Medes had a conspiracy, a confederacy, if you like, with the Persians to defeat Babylon. And uh, that was the beginning of the end as far as the exile was concerned with the Babylonians um, beaten. But this is different and this is what I was saying with reference to sort of, you know, the light coming to the land of darkness at the first coming, but the prophecy really speaking about the second coming. At, at the end of the exile, the Medes, in a confederacy with another nation, they bring to the end the Babylonian rule. Here at the end, it is again the Medes that will bring about the defeat and the destruction of Babylon. But here there is complete destruction, as we're going to see in the following verses. And so clearly this is not what happened at the end of the time of the exile. This is not what happened at the, uh, the that time in history. But this is something that has never happened to Babylon, as we'll see some of the specifics in a minute, and therefore has to be a future event. But once again, the Medes are, lead, uh, are conspiring with others and coming against Babylon. And you'll see reference to the Medes in Jeremiah 50, verse 41, and uh, Chapter 51, verse 11, and verses 27 and 28. So, the Medes are leading it, and their, their bows are going to slaughter the young men. Uh, the personification of weapons is, is fairly common in these kinds of passages. No mercy on the fruit of the womb. No uh, pity for children. There will be this utter devastation and the destruction of the population. As I said before, it, um, it is going to be as vicious... Um, as vicious as what they have been dealing out throughout history. Verse 19, verse 19. And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. When the Jews are in exile and the Medo-Persians defeat the Babylonians, they remain in Babylon. Daniel stayed there. He was there under another king. The place went on. But here, when Babylon is destroyed, it's not just the population that is destroyed, the entire city is destroyed. This kingdom is destroyed. And it's, we're told specifically, like Sodom and Gomorrah, fire from heaven. This is, whether it's literally fire from heaven or not, is irrelevant. The point is that this is utter annihilation. This is not simply a, uh, a sort of a, a defeat and then somebody else moves into the same city. This is an utter destruction. And so, um, verse uh, 20, and it will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. Well, 
what is fascinating is that there was no destruction um, of Babylon at that time, and Babylon continued to be a major city for, for centuries and centuries. And again, I think it's helpful to us, particularly in this country where the nation, as you know it, is relatively young, that you just get an idea of the span of history. That basically, Babylon, after they were defeated while the Jews were in exile, continued to be an, a, a major city in the world for another 1,200-ish years. Can you just think for a minute how long that is? 1,200 years. That takes us back to like 800 AD from the present day, that kind of time span. That's how long Babylon was there. And then eventually it just kind of petered out, became a ghost town. No destruction. Clearly this verse has not yet been fulfilled. But I think also when you have this reference to uh, glory of kingdoms, splendor and pomp, you've got these mighty nations. We have these mighty nations that think that because they're mighty now, they will always be mighty. And I just, I am astounded, maybe it's just a lack of understanding of history, but I'm astounded how often American churches associate a sort of nationalistic jingoism with, with scripture as if somehow they're related. For sure, America is an amazing country and has done many amazing things in history and still holds a lot of power. I come from a country that had an empire all over the world and was a, uh, amazingly powerful. It doesn't have the same power now that it had then. And what is fascinating is that today we look through the various wars that have happened in recent history at places like Iran, Iraq, and Afghanistan as being there somehow these backward places and places that need to have the, the influence of these wonderfully um, democratic and established and, um, and mighty nations. But when it comes to the end, they're the ones battling out and they're the ones that are the mighty nations and we're not there. Not Britain, not America. We're just not there. And I think that it would, we would be so wise to just take a step back and just look at history. And you see, particularly in the book of Daniel, where Daniel has this vision of these various um, the statue in chapter 2, and then the, 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 the beast and the horns in later chapters, but representing all these various nations. And the lesson to Nebuchadnezzar is, you think you're the greatest right now, but you're nothing. I'm the sovereign king who oversees all these kingdoms. And I will let them rise up, and I'll bring them back down. And I'll rise up another one, and I'll bring it down. They come and they go. And I think it's powerful that Babylon, with its splendor and its pomp, just thought that, that it was the, the real deal. And then it's going to be utterly destroyed. And I think that we need to remember every other kingdom will be destroyed too. Our hope is not in kingdoms other than the coming kingdom of God because our trust is in that king. Verse 20. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations, as we said. So there will be no re, uh, repopulating of it. It will never, ever be inhabited. All generations. It's very, very clear when we come to the kingdom of God and the glory of God fills the whole earth, we have to remember that we'll be people like us resurrected in physical bodies. I find that strange. 
<laughs> I really do. But we know that we come back with Christ. We know we have bodies. We know we glorify him on earth. We know that there will be here with Christ on earth. And so in physical bodies, we'll be breathing physical air and living in physical homes with physical elements coming down. It, it's, it's a bizarre thought to, to many of us. Um, but the whole earth won't have people living in it. Babylon won't. Even in the kingdom of God, there will be places that because of judgment will not have human life there. And so Babylon will be. No Arab will pitch his tent there. What's fascinating is when you go back through the various judgments that Isaiah has already issued to different nations, when you look at chapter 5, verse 17, uh, chapter 7, verse 21, and when we look at these judgments, that we see that there will often be um, a judgment on their agriculture, on the, on the land itself. They won't be able to grow produce anymore. But there seems to always be grazing. It will say, well, there'll be, there'll be no, 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 no sort of gr- growing of vineyards, but animals will graze there. Well, here, there's going to be no Arab pitching their tent, no shepherds making their flocks lie down. There won't be sufficient grazing, even for an agriculture of grazing, let alone an agriculture of growing. Often when the land is not able to produce a big crop, then grass is simply grown and animals are grazed over large periods of land. Think of the Australian uh, outback for for much of that, where you have these cattle farms that are the size of small countries, you know. Um, But even that won't be able to happen. When it references the Arab pitching their tent and the shepherds, it's not talking about lush green fields in Wales or New Zealand where the the lambs are are grown while they eat on this lovely, bountiful grass. Rather, um, it's talking about shepherds who, for their living, would cover these large sections. They don't need a lot of grazing at all because they cover such vast areas, and yet there would not even be sufficient for that. Rather, in verse 21, but wild animals will lie down there. Wild animals will lie down there. Um, Their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell, and their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers, and jackals in the pleasant places, uh, the pleasant palaces. Its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. Okay, so it gets a little tricky. I mentioned, funnily enough, and and from my perspective, completely coincidentally, when we were were briefly dipping into Leviticus this morning, that when you have lists of animals, the clean and the unclean, because they're so infrequently mentioned, it's very difficult to ascertain precise names. When it talks about hyenas, um, for example, in verse 22, it literally is talking, you know, it's not like, oh, here's the word for hyena, we see it in Hebrew all the time. Rather, it's a word that technically means howling creature, and they go, howling creature, Um, I'll go with a hyena, you know. And some of the, sometimes when it comes to names of animals and what have you, it becomes a little bit laughable. Some modern versions, for example, like to make the Leviathan in the, the book of Job to be a crocodile or a hippopotamus or something. And it's like, read the description. That ain't no croc. <laughs> you know, this is something completely different. And uh, as this great sea monster. But people are saying, well, here's a, here's a name. We don't really know what it is. We know it's in the sea. And they're just thinking in their very limited modern day frame of reference. And so we mustn't be guilty of that. 
When we come, therefore, to the verse, and it says wild animals in my text in front of me, it literally, uh, for that, says wild desert animals. Um, it, 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 you know, the word has elements of wild and wilderness and the desert and their animals. But we don't really know anything more about them. We don't know specifically what kind. When it says ostriches, um, uh, you'll notice my, my Bible in the footnote says, or owls. If you gave me a, a room, of a, if you took me to a little, a little uh, some enclosure, and you said, just pop in there, would you open the door? And you say, why, what's in there? Oh, it's a bird. Oh, what kind of bird? It's an ostrich, or, or maybe an owl. No, maybe an owl? No, maybe an ostrich. You know, it, that would make a huge bit of difference as to whether I'm going in the, in the, in the, in the enclosure or not. You know? I mean, I've, I, I did a bit of falconry when I was younger, and I know a fair bit about owls. And if there was an owl in, in, the, in the enclosure, it's not going to trouble me at all. I'm perfectly happy to walk into an enclosure with an owl in. But you've got a flipping ostrich in there. I'm not going anywhere near it. I remember going to wildlife parks and my kids being traumatized by, uh, by uh, ostriches from behind fences. I mean, they are, they are vicious creatures. So... That's very different. So when you, when you see in your Bible a reference to an ostrich in a footnote saying, oh, maybe it's an owl, that means they haven't got a clue. It's an animal of some kind, probably a bird, but we don't really know what. Um, again, the hyenas, we're not really sure about either. The one animal that is there that is mentioned that is, is somewhat definitive is wild goats. The wild goats are going to be dancing. And if you've seen goats, you understand the concept of dancing. But what is interesting is, and let's take a step back now before we kind of zoom back in again. When you look at this as a whole, you've got a whole bunch of animal-type creatures that we really don't know much about, with the exception of a goat. Animal-type creatures that are there, and they're going to be in the palaces. This, this place will be destroyed, like Sodom and Gomorrah, all wiped out, and you're picturing these kind of ruins and remains. If you're into any post-apocalyptic kind of sci-fi stuff, you've probably seen a bunch of shows and movies that will give you visualizations of this. This kind of wild landscape, nothing's there, broken windows, everything's shattered, and then these animals wandering around, and they're somehow confined to that region. They, there's, no, there's no grazing, but somehow they're there. Now, if there's not enough grazing for a long-distance shepherd, so to speak, makes you wonder what ostriches are going to be living off and what have you. Now, as I say, the one animal that we do know about here uh, more clearly, what the word is, is goats. And that same uh, goat is referenced elsewhere. And I'm going to turn, and you, you can join me or just listen, I'm not, it's not going to be a long journey, but I'm going to turn to Leviticus again because it seems to be the day of Leviticus today, so we'll go there. And Leviticus 17 and verse 7. Um, well, let's read back a little bit. Let's, Leviticus 17 and verse 5. Uh, contextually, we're talking here about um, the sacrifices and the place of sacrifice. It says in verse 5, This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to Yahweh, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of Yahweh at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. Okay, so there's always sacrifices being made. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. 
This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Stop worshipping goat demons. Funnily enough, it literally here is the same word. It's the word for goat. And it's talking about them whoring after goats. Well, either they're into some pretty serious sexual sin there, or as the translator here understands it, that what's going on is that they are, that, that, that there's this recognition that the goats here are basically demon creatures that are described as goats. That's not unusual to us. It's not unusual to us. When we look at the description of the angelic beings in Ezekiel, we see animal faces. When we're in Isaiah, and we back in chapter 6, and we looked at the seraphim, we talked about them being serpent creatures. In the garden, when Eve is approached by the serpent, again, that is a being that is angelic. That is not a snake on legs like the storybooks. That is an angelic being. It's a, it's a being in the realm of the Elohim, in the unseen realm. It is what we would call demon, and in particular, one in particular, obviously, Satan. Now, animals, wild animals of the wilderness and animals of the sea are routinely associated with demonic creatures. This goes way, way back to the first book of the Bible that was probably written, which is the book of Job, where Job um, begins his book with Satan going before God in chapter 1, yes? And he ends his book with Satan as well. The Leviathan is symbolic. I do believe it's a literal creature, yes, but nevertheless, it also has symbolism, and it's symbolic of Satan. He is Leviathan, which, by the way, is the, is the, the solution to what's really going on at the end of, of Revelation and the answer that's being given to Job. And so animals in these two locations, the sea and the wilderness, are routinely associated with demonic activity. You see that in the gospel accounts where Jesus is driven out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and we're told specifically he's there with the wild animals. What do the wild animals represent? Demonic entities. And who sees him there in the wilderness? The number one demonic entity, Satan. You see how it kind of fits together? I could give you a whole bunch of other references that would uh, bore you, I think, but you get the gist that the, these type of animals are often associated with demonic beings. And so it's entirely possible, although funnily enough, most of the commentaries I was looking at in preparation um, don't like, aren't comfortable with this being demons and tend to opt for literal goats and other literal animals of various types. But, but I don't think so. And then, if you turn with me to Revelation 18, I told you there was one other main passage. We've referenced Jeremiah a couple of times. But here in Revelation 18, we have the fall of Babylon as well. And again, like Jeremiah 50 and 51, you can go away and read this in your own time and see some more details. But it, it, it covers the entire chapter. And the beginning of the chapter says in Revelation 18 and verse 1, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth, earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, for she has become a dwelling place for demons. Isn't that interesting? Keep going, it gets more so. A haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. 
There you have the link of your birds, owls or ostriches, I care not, and your beasts and demons. Is it that the physical, the, the creatures that are there are literally animals of various sorts that live in the wilderness? I am totally, utterly open to that. I think that's possible. But what I am absolutely sure about is that these creatures are representative of demons as well. And that in the same way that there were literally wild animals in the wilderness when Jesus went out to be tempted by Satan, at the same time, the point of those animals is, is that they represent a demonic realm. Jesus went to a demonic realm and he beat the devil, resisted the temptations. Here, we have the same connotations. These creatures, birds, beasts, whatever, that they, and the goat in particular, which even to this day is associated with demon worship and Satanism, that these animals are, um, are confined. How is it that the glory of God will cover the earth, that the world will have this time of the kingdom of God, which we know from Revelation 20 is a thousand years and yet after that kingdom comes the final judgment when demons are judged and cast into the lake of fire. What happens to demons that are doing their bidding in the world today? Paul talks about Satan being the god of this world. We talked about principalities, rulers, authorities. What, though they have been defeated by the cross, they're still operating today. And yet in the kingdom, they're clearly not. Where are they? Confined to Babylon. The Babylon will be a place that, be, as a sign of judgment, as a sign of judgment on the earth, will be a place of desolation, a place where no one will live and nothing will grow, and a place where demons will be isolated. They will be, and, and again, this might shake a few people's worldviews, but we know that the demonic realm is part of the angelic realm. They're just the bad ones. We have, we have the angelic realm and their natural habitat, as it were, is in the heavens, the heavenly realms, the spiritual realm. But we do know that at times both angels and demons have come to the earth and physically manifested. They can exist on earth just as ultimately we will be able to exist in heaven. There are these different realms, but there is not as if there's no crossing over in biblical history. And... We see specifically that in the book of Revelation, there is the casting down of a third of the angels from the heaven to the earth. Now, that's in Revelation 12, I believe it is. But a lot of people associate that with um, the fall of Satan. Do you ever heard it said that when Satan fell, a third of the angels fell with him? That's Revelation 12. Completely different time. Got nothing to do with the beginning of the beginning of history. It's to do with the end of history. So it seems that what happens is that a bunch of angelic beings at that point are are cast from the heavenly realm to come and inhabit the human realm. So I want us to understand that though angelic beings are typically unembodied, living in the spiritual realm, we have a long history of scripture of the angelic realm being able to come to earth, whether it's fallen angels in Genesis 6, whether it's Satan in Genesis 3, whether it's the angels coming to announce the birth of the Messiah, we, we, we routinely see them crossing to the earthly realm and taking some form of physical form. 
I believe that in Revelation um, 18, in the fall of Babylon, in Isaiah 13, we have the location of imprisoned demons in physical form on earth during the period of the kingdom. That's what I understand it to be. And again, it's a reminder to us that, uh, that God is going to bring judgment. He's going to make all things right. That This future hope that we were talked about in First Peter is going to come to pass. And when it happens, he has every eventuality covered. And there will be a time when there will be no more war. There will be no fighting. Swords will be beaten to plowshares. There will be people living harmoniously. The lion will lie down with the lamb. And the demonic realm will be set aside uh, to keep them out of trouble, imprisoned, for sure, but I think also as a statement of judgment. God says, here will be this desolate place that will stand as a testimony to what God thinks of their sin. Their sin from Genesis 11 of the Tower of Babel, right the way to their sin that they are committing at the time of the fall of the city, where most of them are gathered to go and attack Jerusalem, as we spoke about last time. But this sin of Babylon will be so great that they will be there for the kingdom as a statement of God's wrath. Again, as we'll, we'll end where I started with the prayer. We would do well to remember that we are worshippers of a God who is a God of wrath. He will be just. When we see crimes, when we see hideous and heinous crimes that impact our lives and the lives of those we love, we cry for justice. We instinctively cry for justice. And the Bible constantly is a reminder that justice is coming, that God will put all things right that those who do not bow the knee, that those who reject him and resist him, that judgment will come. It will come to the religious, and it will come to the, um, to the barbarian, for want of another phrase. It doesn't matter how civilized or uncivilized we are, how educated or uneducated we are, God's judgment is going to come. And to me, it's just fascinating that God will leave, as it were, a smoldering stump as a statement of his wrath, even during the glorious period of the kingdom. Even at that time when, when the, the world is covered with the glory of God, that part of that glory involves a reminder of his wrath, a reminder of who he is. I think sometimes the, the redemption that we have in Christ, we don't feel the import of it enough because we don't feel the import of our sin enough. That we, as Christians, can come, become so familiar with the concept of the blood of Jesus washing away all of our sins, that we forget quite what a price it was, quite what a, a burden it was, how great our sin is. We as Christians have become so familiar with the society's uh, acceptability quota that we can happily think of ourselves as good people. 
We can happily think of ourselves as being people who are, okay. oh yeah, we're Christians, we theologically know that we're sinners and we theologically believe in original sin and we theologically accept that we're worthy of the wrath of God, but really we think we're pretty good. We go through our lives and we're not like those other people. And then we start to sound scarily like those Pharisees. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like those people. And I just think that though these passages of Scripture, I'm well aware as we cover through Isaiah that week after week we're going to have passages like this where we're going to see God's judgment and we're going to say, okay, well, this is going to happen in the future to Babylon. What does it say to me? How does it help me with my Christian life today? And I think that the smoldering stump of Babylon is, if nothing else, a permanent reminder for the kingdom's entirety of the wrath of God. And I pray and I hope that when we sing songs like our sins are, they are many and his mercy is more, that we understand the weight of that. This is the burden of Babylon and I hope that their burden will have weight upon us as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this rich chapter of scripture. We thank you that you are the judge and that judgment will come. And we thank you, Lord, that, uh, that that judgment for us has already come. It's come upon your Son in our place, the punishment for our sins. Lord, may we, may we constantly rejoice in this redemption from sin. And may we live like ones who have been redeemed from sin, we pray. Amen.